Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Sun. I'm a clinical psychologist and family therapist, and I'm the director of the Peregrine Centre. We are partners with New South Wales Health in the Rural Mental Health Partnership. Today's topic is about parent training, and I'm very excited to welcome two very wonderful guests. Uh, I'll give them a minute to introduce themselves. We will start with Jenny Brown. Hi, Rebecca and guests. I am Dr. Jenny Brown. I'm social worker background, family therapy trained, doctoral research in the area of parents and their experience of their child's mental health treatment. And at the moment, I am directing a parent resource called the Parent Hope Project. Thanks, Jenny. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your career thus far? Any highlights you wanted to share? Well, I really have always been passionate about family work and mental health. So right from the early 80s, working in alternate care, but then moving into formal family therapy training, working with some renowned family therapists overseas and training with them in the US and in the UK, and coming back to Sydney and being really committed to helping others train in family system skills. So setting up the Family Systems Institute with a colleague in 2004, and as I've already said, a developing interest as I've supervised and consulted mental health teams around mostly the Sydney area in how to engage parents effectively in their child's treatment. And Mark? Yeah, so uh, Mark Donovan, and I'm a psychologist by trade, clinical psychologist. Um, like yourself, Jenny, a long-term interest in in uh, working with families. Uh, worked for about 30 years with children and families. And for the last 15, uh, it, Wollongong developed a, a parenting program that I'm not quite at the stage you're at with, so I'm currently writing it up as part of a doctorate. So, but, you know, interested again in trying to, you know, the, the reason for that was trying to find something that seemed to help families, help parents, uh, the, you know, the current products sort of met their needs, but they didn't for the, the client group I was working with. And then, you know, you tweak things. So, um, yeah, so I have a long-term interest and, you know, families will be at the heart of the interest. So let's start with a, not necessarily an easy question, but a pretty foundational question. What is the difference, would you say, between family therapy, family inclusive practice, and parent training? Who wants to start? Maybe Mark. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think great question, and um, and just thinking of you know many practitioners out there who would feel like oh I can't work with families, and there are differences. Obviously, on you know on the outside, you're still working with different parts of the system in terms of working with the parents if you're doing parent training, but you're not working with as many elements of the system as you would in family therapy. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, underneath the bonnet, then the, the theory driving the practice would be pretty different. 
So a lot of parent training programs, you know, they would have a fair behavioral component. They could be often attachment-based programs. However, there'd still be often behavioral principles guiding them. Um, family therapy obviously coming from a different space in terms of family principles. And not to say, of course, that parent programs can't have family principles driving them. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the stuff you'll see on the market in parent training is behavioral-based mm. parent training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm sure there's hundreds of other differences, but I'll kick us off anyway and I'll leave yeah, it to you. Yeah, it's a complex thing. It was interesting just driving here today thinking how would I define the difference because theoretically I think family systems whether I'm working with an individual, a couple, a family, a team. So there's not a lot of distinction. But I think the distinction you're asking about, Rebecca, is in relation to the model rather than the theory. Mm -hmm. And a model of family therapy is engaging more than one generation Mm -hmm. of a family Mm -hmm. in the therapy process. And then family inclusive practice is the broader delivery of a service that welcomes family involvement and doesn't isolate parents in particular in the treatment offered something that's in close to my heart. Yeah. And then parent training is about empowering parents. Mm. In and various modalities, as you've mentioned, Mark, and empowering, equipping parents to have more confidence mm. in their important role. Mm-hmm. And there are, of course, different approaches to that. Predominantly behavioral attachment theory, as you say. My um, bias is Bowen family systems theory. So it's really looking at less the behavior although that's one piece of it, and a lot more of the emotional sensitivity between parent and child and Mm -hmm. the back and forth of the circular patterns. Mm. It's interesting, I think, because lots of people would say, oh, it's simple, you know, family-inclusive practice is something anybody can do as long as it involves someone in the family coming into therapy, that's family-inclusive practice. And then parent training is working only with parents, and then family therapy is working with everybody. But actually, all the thinking behind it crosses over quite a lot. Yes. And you can be doing family-inclusive practice, but with very sophisticated kind of family therapy understandings or, as you say, models or hypotheses, or vice versa. You know, you can certainly be doing family therapy, which you see as family therapy, but actually you're thinking very individually. Mm -hmm. So there is a crossover but a separation, I guess, between parent training and family therapy. And we're particularly talking today about parent training. So uh, we all have a, a, a parent program that we have written. So maybe we'll just take some time to tell people about the program and what are the things that you feel it really tries to address and well, what do you think might be different about your program? So maybe we'll start with Jenny. Well, I have developed two parent training programs to go to two different levels. Mm -hmm. I'll start with what for me is the flagship program. Mm -hmm. It's called the Parent Hope Project. It has really been fine-tuned from my doctoral research where I've heard the voices of parents as they've reported at the beginning of their adolescence treatment, at discharge about 12 weeks later, and then following them up six months as what has been effective parent engagement. And the key finding from that research is that the parents who reduce their reliance on experts 
and discovered the things that they had the capacity to adjust in themselves, that they had hope for the future six months follow up, Mm -hmm. whereas the parents who continued to look for outside expert fixes for their children were actually struggling and really depleted six months after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's simplifying it, but the Parent Hope Project is based on that finding Mm -hmm. and it has six sessions, it's manualized, The first half is called stepping back because of the value of parents learning to observe rather than trying to change things and fix. Mm. Observe their interaction with their child and their parenting partner and it helps parents reflect on that through a series of set questions and then introduces key ideas to ask about their interaction. And the second half of the program is stepping up So how parents can more actively adjust the way they connect with their child, not Mm -hmm. connecting to worry, but connecting to the whole child as Mm -hmm. a human. Mm -hmm. And the parent I position, inner principles, rather than trying to push or pull the child. And then keeping a big picture view rather than this push in the current climate for quick fixes. Mm and helping parents tolerate that. So that's the Parent Hope Project. And then aside from that, based on the same ideas, are a series of seminars and discussions that mental health workers, family workers can use with a group of parents called the Parent Confidence Seminars. But based on the same idea, I know I shouldn't talk too long, one last little point (laughs) here, that The key idea, it's actually based on Murray Bowen's theory of family systems theory, is that if the parents can reduce their focus on the child, a worry focus, an anxious focus, trying to follow the child and then losing themselves in the process, this idea is that if the parent can redirect their energy to adjusting what's in their control... Mm. They can create a little bit of a buffer in the space between them and their child, which the child needs to be able to develop psychological autonomy, that that is the secret from Mm -hmm. a family systems Mm -hmm. perspective Mm -hmm. of children beginning to recover Mm -hmm. or building resilience. Who would you say it's really aimed at? What kind of parent are you looking for to, to join you in that program? Two levels. So the Parent Hope Project, I have designed it as an intervention Mm -hmm. for children, adolescents, young people who have complex mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. But the intervention is through the parent. The child may be in their own treatment and that may be useful, although many children, particularly adolescents and young people, don't want to or mm-hmm. they're resistant to engagement. Mm-hmm. So this is an intervention. Mm-hmm. There's a sister program that could be run in a small group called the Parent Confidence Project, which is a little bit more preventative, mm-hmm. more for anxious and worried and primary care level. Mm-hmm. And then the seminar groups are for the general population as a preventative program. Mm-hmm. Great. What about you, Mark? Yeah, so it's interesting to listen, uh, Jenny. I'm not familiar with the program. Sounds great. And, you know, just listening to what you're describing, 
um, you know, probably a fair bit of overlap. It's interesting, different area, but a fair bit of overlap. So I was listening to what you're saying there in terms of, you know, stepping back and then stepping up. And, um, so the program that Confident Carers Cooperative Kids, the idea was very much there's things that work as a parent. Some parents have been exposed to, to good family backgrounds and they're able to bring that into, you know, their own parenting. And that's fabulous. But a lot of parents haven't had such a great background depleted of those things, haven't got the resources around them. And so some parents do need to sort of discover what it is that works. And there are some things that tend to work. However, it becomes a list and a list is hard to remember, hard to remember if you're trying to deliver a program. So what hope if you're going to them? And so that's what I found from a lot of the existing programs. So myself and a mate, Greg Konza, we're trying to find some unifying metaphors or images that we could try and help parents to use. Um, that would then help them to remember the stuff that's useful. And so, you know, I like stepping back, stepping up, because there's a whole bunch encapsulated within each of those simple words, and, and yet they're easy to remember. Mm. And so, you know, as a parent, I say, okay, step back. And, and then, then all the things that are part of observation, being present, like that are going to come into that and relational stuff. So we latched on to heat. Now, we were both working in child and mental health and uh, dealing with a lot of families where there's a lot, of, a lot of distress. And parents would often talk about, oh, things are pretty hot at home, or like it boiled over. Mm. And so there'll be this description of heat in the family. And so we kind of thought, okay, so let's build something around that. And so we, we kind of use that as a, as a central part of a, a metaphor that then is about trying to help reduce heat in families. So, but, you know, trying to help parents to not inadvertently escalate some of the conflicts because there's just things part of family life there's natural tensions and what have you and help parents to then sort of you know what we describe as kind of bringing the green stuff around relationship play praise like the positive aspects you'll see in again a lot of programs for parents so that was that was really the essence of it we're both interested in uh, acceptance commitment therapy as an approach so Mindfulness is a key aspect in terms of, but it's really just stepping back. Mm. Like we're ultimately trying to help parents to to notice, and you call it stepping back, and we might call it mindful play, but it's the same thing. And we're trying to help parents to just pause, notice what's happening, try and see that as you describe it, the bigger picture, so that they can see more than just the behaviour that's annoying them, and they can understand it in the context of all the other things that might be happening for that child in that day in that family in that community and so broaden out their focus so yep that's essentially what we're trying to do and you know it's wrapped up into an eight week program two hours a week it looks a lot like a lot of the typical behavioral parent programs but we spend the first two weeks helping parents first of all understand problem behaviors in this broader context and then the second week's about values parent values what's important to you what kind of parent do you want to be? And we spend some time helping parents to reset and set a compass point for the values they want to bring you know, to their role as parents. And, you know, and that sets a frame then for when we deliver the behavioral stuff is delivered within that context of understanding that what's actually happening here, understanding the child's perspective in it, and then considering what it is that you want to bring as a parent and how you want to be. So we're not telling them how to be parents, but we share a few ideas that tend to work better. In terms of, you know, how to give an instruction in a way that might work better. I think it, that is one thing that often people would say is common with a lot of parenting training is a, a sense of understanding what's going on and then having some kind of strategies or skills in order to to change whatever's not working. I guess for my program, which is actually called Black Box Parenting, 
It's a very specific target audience, which is about people who've experienced trauma and then are, are going on to try and be parents and often parenting children who've experienced trauma. And so a lot of those things that you've listed there are included, but also some ideas about what happens to the brain after trauma and how do relationships change when I've been hurt in close relationships and the actual black box metaphor, which is simply saying things from the past affect the present. And we don't necessarily need to go into every detail about all the terrible things that have happened, but we have to understand they're affecting how I'm parenting at this time. So although there's similarities, there's also uh, differences in the kind of parent who might benefit most from the different programs. How do you think parents should go about kind of chasing down the parenting group that's for them or how, how would people start with this kind of complex landscape of lots of different people all wanting to help and all suggesting that they might be helpful? But how would someone start on understanding what might be helpful for me personally? It's a good question, isn't mm. it? I mean, as I listen to both the other descriptions of the parenting programs, I just want to clap and cheer <laughs> because the more access that parents can have to a space to be able to just have the pressure off the guilt burden released mm -hmm. and be able to get some objectivity through the processes of the training, that would just be wonderful to have more of it out there. Mm -hmm. I can hear the specifics of the parents that you're targeting. I think the parents that the program I've developed, particularly the Parent Hope Project, uh, that it, it's targeted to parents who are feeling helpless mm. in trying to find the right assistance for their anxious or complex symptom presentation kid mm -hmm. or adolescent. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the broader program is designed to be accessible and more preventative. But certainly, I can hear the similarities. I think that parent programs can um, not be tribal about, mm -hmm. <laughs> but be offered out there. And, and it, in many ways, it's what's the program that the worker, the family worker, the mental health worker is most comfortable with because their ownership of the ideas of the program is critical to it being delivered calmly, thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah, and, and it kind of brings me to a very specific question for our rural listeners, which is often uh, rural mental health practitioners are generalists. You know, you're seeing whatever comes through your door. And as a generalist, I might not have specific child training. What's your opinion about people who don't have specific child training doing parent training? Well, it's, it's less frightening than for a lot of practitioners who, who don't work with children or haven't um, feel like I won't know what to do. Like kids, I mean, and yeah, you need to bring a little bit more to some of those child sessions because children won't necessarily know why they've come to see you and have a list of things they want to discuss with you. You know, and so it's an easier in because you're talking to an adult, an adult who's got some needs and a lot of the work won't be that dissimilar from helping that adult if they were having mood 
issues with their mood or issues in their relationship. Mm. They are having issues in relationship with their child is, mm. is sort of what's happening here. And so, you know, you'd be using the same kind of skills that you would bring to your general work. Does help to know a bit about child development, I think, because then when parents are describing these things, you can kind of think, oh, yep, that's about power or mm, that is a bit odd, isn't it? Mm. Um, so, you, you know, you've got a bit of a sense of which maybe which, which things to explore in a little more depth as parents are talking. But, you know, I, I'd imagine that it, it's uh, it's a good area to work in. And certainly, um, you know, I've been involved in, in training people up for the last 15 years in, in our program. And um, these are brand new psychologists. They've, they've never worked with a family before, let alone, uh, you know, adults, children, nobody. Mm. But they can be effective. Mm. And we know that um, what you're saying before, Jenny, about that, you know, you can do the work with the young person too or the child, but it may be more effective to work with the parent, not to say the parent's the problem but they're the solution. And that, you know, a lot of people experience, like, you want to be effective in this work. We do this for a reason. Like, mm. you know, we're, we're drawn to this work because we want to try and do something that's helpful. And uh, we, when you when you help a parent to reconnect with their child and, like, turn something that's just become so difficult, that's part of their 24-7, into something that they can get some joy from for a change, um, it's so rewarding. So not only, I think, is it accessible, but I also think it's a really rewarding area to work in. Here, here. <laughs> yeah. That's probably why we do it, Jenny. <laughs> yes. And I think that that is interesting, isn't it, to have a, a manual or something that you can kind of base your work on and also that idea, oh, actually, I do work with adults all the time. I do have a set of skills I could bring to this and maybe I can be useful because in some areas, I'm the only choice. You know, it's not, it's either uh, therapy with me or no therapy at all. So let's uh, think about some pretty common questions that have come up from rural mental health practitioners. By far the most common one is, how do you work with parents when they think the child is the problem and I just want to drop my child off, have you fix them, come back and collect the brand new kid and then hopefully our family will be all fixed. How do you manage that? How do you begin to manage that? Well, I wrote an article some years ago published in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Family Therapy with that exact title. We don't want your help, but will you please fix our, our children? <laughs> and firstly, in how to deal with it, I would say be aware of how confused parents are out there. They're being told that early intervention, getting experts involved, you know, the beginning signs of symptoms is vital. The more they hear about complex development issues of children's brain, the more intimidated they are. The society we're in, I think, is setting parents up to depend on experts and not know that they have a lot of inherent resources that can be mobilized, mm -hmm. that can be incredibly useful to their children. So uh, I, there's a lot I could say about that question, and I'm sure Mark will have some important things to add. But uh, the main thing I'd want to say is as a worker to think about how to not contribute mm. to that, mm. to have a way of greeting parents collaboratively rather than as the expert and we're going to assess your child and you're going to wait outside, mm -hmm. involve parents, listen to parents, learn from parents, and parents can calm down and feel a culture of hospitality mm -hmm. to them. And I think that can make the world of difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only other thing I want to add to that is in my private practice over the years, 
I have refused to see children without parent involvement. Now, refuse sounds like it's a bit bolshy, and I don't mean it that way. I've just explained, and and admin have explained, that the way we work is valuing the importance of parents in any involvement or any treatment with a child, right up to any child that's still living at home, who's still dependent on the parents. So that can be right up into the 20s. -hmm. Even then, even post 16, 18, 20, I just keep this policy that the parent is invited to be part of it. And that's one of the conditions Mm -hmm. of the work Mm -hmm. as a positive offering to parents Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Gosh, um, you, do you hear this, Mark, of parents who feel really shut out mm. yes. from their, yeah. their kids or their adolescents' treatment? Yeah, yeah. As, if, as if it could happen in a vacuum and mm-hmm. that would be the job. Yes. And I think sometimes it's practitioners who feel frightened to have a parent they don't know what to do with a parent like mm. oh, then they'll see me doing a bad job and it's all sorts of interesting you know sort of slightly sad reasons why those practices occur compared to family inclusive practices where parents are included and indeed it's the model um that because of course you, you don't live by yourself you live with a family and those interactions will probably change things so yeah in terms of the original question 100 percent endorse all the things you just said and um i chose to make a point of trying to help parents to to not feel at fault because my attitude is that they're not at fault Mm -hmm. that there's things that they may be doing inadvertently that probably may not be helpful yeah that might be the case like but that's all of us and so and also that um if a parent tells me this you know that they'll made frame it in terms of because they're exasperated they've been trying for years they've tried everything that that they thought of everything that anybody else has told them that's worked for them doesn't work and that so they've arrived then at this point of of learned helplessness and exasperation, and that's probably why they say, fix my kid, because I can't. Mm. I give up. Mm. And so, you know, I'll know that there is something probably about this child that makes them tricky for this parent, because the match, like it could be that with a different parent, this child's fine. Mm. But this child with this parent, because guess what, they're sibling, fine, not a problem. So there's something that's happening in this relationship that's, that's broken down, and so I'm listening, and and so I suppose I'll have to make a point to a parent then in terms of, you know, trying to help them move from that position of the child's the problem to, to broadening it out is, look, yeah, I can hear that there's this, that's difficult, this difficult, that's difficult, this difficult. But what I know is that a regular parenting works for most people, but it's probably not going to work for your child. So most of us, we're not consistent all the time. We don't do a great job with all the stuff we do as parents. We just get by, but it's like, you know what? It's good enough and it works. But I can see with little Matthew, little whoever, um, Lucy, whoever, that there's something here that's, that's, and so let's have a think about what might be helpful. And I know I could see Lucy or Matthew, and you know we could have the, the most cracking session in the world, but I'd know that they'd forget it as soon as they walked out the door. So you may not be the cause of the problems. However, you are the best form of a solution. So that's probably slightly badly phrased. I hope to do a better job with a parent, but <laughs> but you know th- that's my attitude is that. I know, I know from the data that, you know, the numbers will tell me that I can be more influential by helping this parent to think about how they can respond in a way that's going to probably reduce the, the chance of these diff- things that they're finding difficult that are happening in the family. So there's this idea about educating the parent and the family coming in in the model that you are bringing to mm-hmm. the treatment and why you think them being involved is important or, or 
vital, actually. But then, Jenny, I think that's an interesting point that there's just a kind of, and this is how we do stuff here, and so, you know, get on board. I have noticed that is uh, often missing in, in a lot of people's practice because, of course, they don't define themselves that way. And sometimes people say, oh, but the young person, for instance, doesn't want the parent involved or there's something going on where they say, oh, I, I won't be in the room with my parents. If that happens, we'll have a massive fight and, you know, everything will fall apart. What do you think are some of the, you mentioned, Mark, oh, I'm nervous the parent will judge me as a therapist. What do you think are some of the other hesitations why people feel like, actually, I would prefer not to have parents in the room? Well, I can draw from the secondary findings of my research. It wasn't a key part of the question I was exploring. I was wanting to understand parents' experience, but I became interested in the clinician's experience of the parents and did a little bit of surveying and group discussions and triangulating that with what the clinicians are writing about parents in the case notes. And summarizing that, the the key thing that clinicians in child and adolescent mental health were saying is we find parents' defensiveness very off-putting, mm-hmm. very difficult to engage with, mm-hmm. and the kids are easier. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the point, the interesting point you made, Mark, earlier that if you are not working with the children, it's probably easier to not have that, you're not caught in a triangle Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between the treatment of the child and the clinician tends to align more and be protective Mm -hmm. towards the child and a little bit more critical, judgmental of the parent is easy. So it's it's just an invitation, therefore, for the clinician just to think, how can I neutralize myself Mm -hmm. and not judge And I think listening to the parent's story of how they've come to the place where they're engaging your service, just bearing witness Mm. to what they've been through is a really valuable starting point to engagement. It's kind of the 101, Mm. isn't it, of building a therapeutic alliance, but it's often forgotten. Mm. And often the parents are so anxious, they just want to talk about the child. And it's just having the capacity as a clinician to say, First of all, I want to hear from you and track your journey and trying to find help for your child, trying different things to help this particular child that you're most worried about. It's interesting, isn't it, because there's this idea of I'm worried the parent will be judging me and then the parent comes in and says, oh, I'm worried I'm going to be judged as a bad parent and th- therefore I'm defensive or maybe give the impression that I'm not as involved as I probably think I am. So uh, non-judgment is a is a big thing. Mm. I wondered also, I, I noticed a lot of people I supervise will talk about conflict, that I'm worried that there'll be a fight and that fight will escalate where it's not necessarily uh, violent or aggressive. That's a worry too. But uh, I'm worried there'll be a fight where the child will, will have their feelings hurt or someone will say something that will be very hurtful to this family. I'll make it worse. I'll make it worse by putting them all together in the one place. What about that? Is that something you've come across when people have been training with you? Sure. Yeah. And like, you know, it's people's own aversion to conflict quite yes. aside from the, the, you know, whatever the, the client may experience. So yeah, nobody wants to make things worse. Yep. And it seems like 
when those arguments happen in the room in front of you, it's like, oh gosh, look what I've done. And yet I'd know that, man, this is nothing compared to what happens at home probably. So mm. I'm just seeing the nice version of what happens. And yeah. so I think it's important I see the, at least what happens. Yeah. So again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I could be slightly biased here in terms of just working with a whole bunch of people new to the trade of psychology. And so that's going to bias my view. Uh, so a lot of them, it's just really not having ways of setting a frame that can can set things up well in in the first conversation over the phone with you know the parent um, to inviting the family in to then laying a few kind of just gentle ways of, of working for that session how it's going to go that kind of helps people feel safe know that the space is going to be all right and often within that space then I notice less conflict I mean not that you don't want to have some conflict mm-hmm. but it becomes safer in some way and if it does kick off you've kind of talked about that that's okay because we all have feelings and they may at times you may find that you have strong responses to things that we talk about here and and that's okay it's all right and we'll just find a way of talking through it and hopefully by the end of today we'll we'll kind of have some ideas of what to go away with i think then you know family or individuals feel held within the work and therefore can maybe speak more calmly sometimes you said uh, how comfortable we are with conflict, and mm. I'm sure Bowen would have plenty to say about that, <laughs> Jen. Um, this idea that if you come from a family where people don't scream at each other and where you know conflict is held, perhaps it's aggressive, but it's aggressive in a in a kind of covert way or a way that isn't at the surface, then it can feel very um, alarming to have conflict. You know, trigger all your fight flight stuff. So what role do you think, Jenny, for people to understand their own uh, kind of buttons and their own point of origin before they get into this kind of work? Oh, big question. I, I think it's incredibly valuable for any clinician to reflect on their own experience of being parented and where they were positioned, what was different about their relationship to their mum and dad, to their siblings, Mm -hmm. which were the more intense relationships. I like your word, your heat metaphor, Mark, because uh, from my theoretical, my biased theoretical perspective, it's the intensity that can be different with one sibling to another. And that intensity the child is part of and reflecting on that as a clinician in one's own family of origin can be incredibly useful mm-hmm. in the the work that we do mm-hmm. for self-awareness. Mm-hmm. But as I think about tolerating conflict, I, I just want to put a caveat there because I think that w- I think a common factor probably between all of our different programs, is we do want parents not to be in flight and fight mode Mm -hmm. and not from their limbic brain. We do want to create a context where they can be mindful and thoughtful, your green zone, but to do it through the process of the parenting engagement rather than moving into being over-responsible. And I think people who are triggered by conflict are going to move too quickly into trying to fix it and calm it down mm-hmm. rather than from what would happen in the, the Parent Hope Project that helps calm parents down so they can think and reflect, which is where growth comes from, and then they can go back and tolerate the discomfort of their own family situation more thoughtfully rather than being done in by it. It's 
taking the exploration into the who, where, what, when, what next, just tracking the process in the family relationships takes parents into a thoughtful space, which can be incredibly useful in just moving them out of just venting, complaining, mm. which is what clinicians find so hard. Yes, yes. So a few thoughts there. We had some kind of listener questions I might run past you. I'd like to know more about strategies to assist parenting parents in helping their children to overcome their anxieties. How would each of us in our parenting programs talk about anxiety in inverted commas? And what would we offer this, this particular question? How do we help parents help their children with their anxiety? Do you want to go first, Rebecca? <laughs> yeah, sure. And I guess, you know, quite specific for my um, cohort, often when we're talking about anxieties, we're not talking about uh, worry, we're talking about fear, we're talking about quite well-developed, beautifully uh, adapted fight-flight systems which have kept people alive in the past. And so actually what we're talking about is calming down those security systems so they trigger when there is uh, a danger or a threat, but they don't trigger when there is, for instance, intimacy in relationship. So I think very much about survival and safety and security. And a lot of the times when people are new to this kind of work, they're a bit shocked as to how much brain space safety and security is taking in somebody who's experienced trauma. So I guess that's where I would start in this kind of like survival some people call it the the kind of reacting brain uh, realm. But of course, there's also worries on top of that. And sometimes people are worried about what looks like a pretty benign threat, like a, I don't know, a teacher yelling at you or whatever. But of course, when you've experienced trauma, that can trigger stuff from the past when you were actually under threat. And so you respond in a way that is appropriate to that threat. You know, why I invited you to go first is I knew that your program did speak to us so strongly and in a way that I know that, you know, our program doesn't explicitly, implicitly, we would talk about the brain, we, you know, talk about fight flight, um, talk about trying to stay out of the red zone and get it back towards green. But, um, and it's interesting again, just to sort of, you know, the, the, the question invites me to think about it more that, you know, I make the assumption, uh, you know, I'll offer children, um, other programs where they present with anxiety. And then, you know, th there'll be parents who come to, that program and they want some help because their child is anxious. And I'm aware that there's relational issues going on and that there's really no point us trying to treat the child's anxiety because the things are a little bigger than the child's anxiety because they're anxious for a reason, which mm. is what you're describing. Mm. And so I'll say, hey, do this other program, which which then is, you know, it's about trying to change behaviors, but it's more about trying to build relationship. You know, we know that relationship is the most, it's the best predictor of outcome. Like the strength of the relationship is the best predictor of outcome from parent training. Mm. And so anything that can strengthen the relationship is going to be a positive thing. And so we can come at it from all sorts of different angles, and yet probably that's part of what's being achieved here. So um, how does our program do it? Like it would try and strengthen relationship, help parents and children to enjoy each other again rather than be at war, mm. and help parents to feel that that they can do things that have influence in a positive way, and um, they have to feel guilty, they don't feel bad, it's not their fault. As, as we actually get, we use those words a number of times throughout, which is, you know comes from compassion-focused therapy a fair bit, but just saying those words, it's, it's not your fault. 
Hmm. that things as they are, like biology. You, you didn't get to choose the biology of your child or yourself. This is how it is, hmm. and this is what you work with. You didn't get to choose that you're trying to support three children by yourself and that you, these tricky things have happened in your past. You didn't get to choose that. Hmm. It's not your fault. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm there's such uh, what you're saying resonates a, a good bit and fits with how the Parent Hope Project delivers its programs. But a couple of things to add: anxiety from a family systems perspective is seen as part of the emotional circuitry. It belongs to the family, not to the individual child. The child may be expressing most of it, but it's in the system. Mm -hmm. So this is an approach that via the parent reducing their intensity with the child through examining what isn't working in their back and forth interactions and giving them some key ideas along the way, that the child's anxiety can resolve itself through having more emotional breathing space. Mm -hmm. So that's the key hypothesis in Bowen theory and built on his research and backed up through ongoing research and my own research that children, if parents are too intensely reactive and involved, either valence, positive involvement, negative involvement, mm -hmm. that the child grows up in reaction to their relational environment rather than becoming their own independent young self. Mm -hmm. And so their, their developmental breathing space gets crowded. Mm -hmm. But then how do you, we're hit with this theme of how do you take parents on this journey without adding guilt mm -hmm. and blame? I'm hearing that theme come across mm -hmm. in both all of our mm -hmm. conversations. And one really interesting thing that parents taught me in hearing their voices was they were all were sensitive to blame, all feeling a sense of either being blamed by clinicians or blaming themselves. But a couple of parents gave me some insight into how blame dissipates, self-blame dissipates, is when they found that they can make a difference. Mm -hmm. I recall a mother saying to me, I don't care anymore about whether I played a part in it. What I care about is that I can be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And that takes all my guilt away. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a helplessness it that adds yeah. layer upon layer of guilt. So another listener question is about when we work with parents, it can often bring up uh, risk issues, child protection issues. And this question is, uh, what advice would you give practitioners about carrying risk, calming a system and working with partners like educational child protective services? I'm going to jump in on the calming the system. <laughs> I, I think that's the answer. <laughs> Be a calm presence in an anxious system. Mm so that you're not contributing to a risk mm. multiplying because everyone is reacting to a fear response. You'd yes. be able to talk a lot <laughs> yes. about that. And there's a lot of fear and um, indeed vicarious trauma out there mm. for clinicians, mm. isn't there, that mm. can have an, an overreaction to the perceived sense of threat and risk. Rather, you don't want to minimize it either. Mm. But just calmly track the facts. Yeah. I think mm. that that is it. this kind of 
hey, I think I understand what's happening here and I think I've got a plan, seems to be very calming to most people. Mm. That I think it's not necessarily that you need all the answers, but there's somebody there who understands enough to say, well, maybe the next step is this or the few options are this. And often people will fall in line with that because they think, oh, fantastic, somebody gets it and they've got a plan and I'm happy with that. But it is very important to acknowledge, I think, that things like uh, risk and trauma are leaky and contagious mm-hmm. and that people often find themselves, and I, I also feel this way, that sometimes I'm acting in a way which is reactive or, oh, quick, we've got to do something right now. And then to step back and realize, oh, gosh, actually doing something right now isn't the only answer and maybe not the best answer. Mm. The other thing I'd say about risk is sharing it, you know, and trying to make sure you're not the only person who's holding that risk, even if it is you and a supervisor or you and a, a mentor or, or somebody like that. I think that's always comforting that I've bounced my idea and explained it to somebody and they feel like, yeah, okay, that's a sensible kind of plan, then I always feel much better about holding that risk. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear the two sides almost like, and I'm reminded, the idea of um, zone of tolerance, I think Dan Siegel talks about Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, one side is minimization, justification, all the processes, because there's something potentially, often not, but potentially there's something happening here that's not okay. And as humans, we don't want to really acknowledge that there's bad things happening because mm. we don't, that's, that's nasty. And that's, that, why should people do those mean, terrible things? Mm. So, you know, in our minds, that may be a process that we, that we inadvertently move towards minimizing, justifying, rationalizing it away on one side, but then the other side, definitely. Mm. And I know, you know, again, early career folk who feel anxious holding the risk. Yeah can often respond in reactive ways rather than calm ways that then have the impact, unfortunately, of just increasing the level of distress in the system, which means that now the family is probably even more at risk now, potentially, but it is a a tightrope in a way. It's hopefully not, it's a maybe more of a plank than a (laughs) tightrope because there's enough space, I think, to walk it, a pathway. Let's call it a pathway. It sounds Mm, better. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. And the the pathway then is just acknowledging both sides, really, that we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, overplay something um, or underplay something, but we want to just, I love the description of, you know, just chasing the facts and calmly unpacking to understand more. And I'll often try and help career, early career folk just kind of have some words to share with family mm. of, you know, like obviously in that first session, you'd be saying, look, you know, obviously I'll be concerned for anybody's safety. If there is, I'll, I'll just let you know if, if I'm concerned for anybody's safety, you know, your child's, but also yours. And then, then to come back to it to, in a, just an everyday way, calmly of like, oh, it's interesting. So look, in today's session, I know you said that thing and it, I guess it gets me a little concerned for your safety. Mm. And I'm wondering what we could do to help with that. And then at times you do have to say, and look, it's something I do need to pass on because it's not okay for the grown-ups to do that. It's interesting to me how many times I have had to make a report or whatever and, and a parent would say, um, have a sense of relief. Mm. I'm not saying they're happy about it, but there's mm. there's some sense of I've been carrying this shame mm. for quite a long time and I know it's not working and I know hurting my child you know, in our terrible fights that we get into is not okay. And I am interested in doing other ways. And now you've, you know, you've you've brought it to a head and said it's not okay and we can all accept it's not okay and we can work towards it not happening again. 
that's not always the case. Of course, sometimes people are very annoyed, very distressed, all those kinds of things. But it is surprising to me how many times people are sort of relieved that it's out in the open. Yes. Yeah. What's well, the way in which you've communicated it openly to the family, to the parent? Yeah. And had a calm but factual conversation about it, as you gave a great example of, Mark, rather than, and fear will do this, we um, triangle when we're fearful of people's mm. responses mm. and do more of the talking to other professionals mm -hmm. and having open conversations with the family. Yeah, that's That builds trust. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like, I'll make a report, but I don't want to talk to the family about it. And sometimes that's legitimate, you know, I'm actually worried for my safety, that's why. But a lot of the time that's because that would be a very uncomfortable conversation. I guess my point is that sometimes it's not as uncomfortable as you think it is yes. because yeah. you've already laid down, hey, you know, we, we said if we were worried about someone's safety, we'd have to do something about it. But, yeah, I take your, your point that it's so much more comfortable to then talk to my colleague about it ad nauseum and a lot uh, because that comforts me that that gives me some sense of calm about it but I don't want to face the actual conflict or potential conflict yeah and like you know that initial conversation could be the most powerful part of the change process that the parent as you just described Rebecca like a parent hearing oh okay so it's not just me that thinks this is not okay mm. Mm. Or, oh, thank goodness, you know, I've been holding this for so long. Yeah. And also, but a parent being reminded sometimes of like, hey, you know what? It's not okay to do that yeah. to your child. Yeah. That's not okay. And that they needed to hear that. Mm. And hopefully there's enough trust with you that you're not just some random person from the authorities come in. You're actually another human being who's took the time to listen and understand as best you can, who's now saying this thing. It might be hard to hear, but mm. it comes from a place of compassion and care and concern for their child. I think the most common reaction is, yes, I know. Okay. You know, it's actually yeah. not a surprise yeah. to them. And yeah. no, I fully expected that you were going to have to do that. Mm. Yeah. Which is, yeah, less scary. Of course, a very uh, intense conversation, but yep. less scary than somebody, you know, becoming so distressed that you're not able to come. All right. What about families where the parents have their own personal challenges like, let's say, a mental health issue, drug and alcohol issue, or maybe uh, intergenerational trauma from their own upbringing? How do you begin to tackle that? Because obviously that can increase defensiveness. It can decrease reflective function. Sometimes it's low literacy or they're a new migrant. There can be challenges, I guess, in, in working with certain parents. How might you adapt what you do with parents for that particular cohort? Firstly, what I hold in my mind from Bowen Family Systems Theory is it's a continuum theory rather than a typology, category, diagnostic theory. One of Bowen's most well-known comments is there's a little bit of schizophrenia in all of us, so, but referring to we all share, and Mark, you've already identified this, we all struggle in different ways and in predictable ways, actually, when it comes to parent-child reactivities. And us clinicians are not separate from the families. We have our own um, inheritance from the hand of cards we've been dealt down the generations. We've got our own struggles and sensitivities. So we're all in the human soup together. <laughs> 
So that's my first kind of perspective on it. Mm -hmm. But how that shapes the parenting program is it's just saying, let's start with the capacity the parent has, which will be on a continuum. Every parent and family presentation sits on a continuum of more intense or less intense in the anxious back and forth that's going on in the family. So I think, I, I would think that all of the parent programs we're representing today can just sit and be utilized by the parent at the level they're at. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for example, in the Parent Hope Manual, it is suggested that parents fill in their back and forth interactions, filling in a little survey in between every session, but it's not required. Mm. And many parents don't have the headspace to do it, the energy, or they don't have a lot of developed self-agency and efficacy mm. to follow through on things, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. We'll do it in session together. So it's just letting, working at the level of capacity of each parent. Yeah. And I'll notice sometimes that there's, there are parents who it feels like left behind in that for whatever's happening for them, and it could be that week or it could be a more of an ongoing struggle that, you know, they're physically there, but they're not really emotionally or mentally there. And they're, they're just kind of like going through the motions a little. And so, I, you know, I'd kind of hope that they can um, pick up a few bits on the way through. So I agree, you know, when you said about they'll sort of take what they can at that moment and there's a few bits, but they'll need more. I just kind of expect they may need more after. So I'm, I'm thinking now about your sort of intergenerational trauma, mm. mental health type issues, um, and that they may need some support in addition to attending a group program, whichever program it is, or individual. They may need some support alongside that, hopefully with someone who's familiar with some of those ideas so they can help put them into practice because that's the other bit. It's great. You can hear it, but then put it into practice, another thing altogether. Mm. Then there's the language issues mm. of various varieties and so um, and cultural issues as well. Mm. Don't pretend to have the answers to those. I'm just aware of them. And again, uh, like yeah, stepping back, stepping up, is it stepping forward? Stepping, stepping up. Stepping yeah. up, yeah, stepping up. And so I'm kind of hoping that a parent gets that bit so that, that they can – hold on to that idea of a some general sense of stepping back from it and they might miss a bunch of other bits and pieces but there's something they can go away with that that is cross-cultural that is also doesn't require too much language to get hold of and then you know there might be some specific bits that you know it'd be great if it was you know interpreted in into their language mm -hmm. that'd be fantastic and i was just last week working with some uh, practitioners in southwest sydney a lot of their client group are from uh, Vietnamese background and from Arabic background. And, you know, they're asking, oh, how can we, you know, use your program with, with these folk? And it's like, yeah, really good question. Mm -hmm. um, and a similar answer. And like, do you want to see if you could get somebody to translate just the key bits? Because, you know, it's not okay to, to expect that, that, that just in, in a different language they can pick this stuff up. I was talking to a student and they were doing a, a black box with Mandarin-speaking family through an interpreter and they were just talking about how much slower, how the pace mm. is different, how you yeah. never know if the nuance has kind of gone through. Yeah. So interpretation, of course, is the basics. Yes. Uh, but th there's a lot to be said, I think, about trying to check in with what's actually getting understood yes. at, at the end, you know, asking people to explain it back or whatever. Yeah. I um, have a question here which I think leads on from that. 
we've all had parents in our groups who've done lots of parenting courses before, but are still parenting the way they've always parented. So what do you think makes the difference between kind of giving information to people and actually having people change the way that they're interacting? It's, it's a good question. And I think a lot of the principles that underlie the things that we've talked about today would hopefully create a space where that you'd decrease the likelihood of that. So all the things are spoken of in terms of meeting parents where they are, um, taking the time calmly to try and understand things, trying to present things in a way that makes sense to them, their background. All those things you'd hope will slowly increase the likelihood. I know that I have this little pet love of imagery. And so that's one of the things that we try to integrate and, you know, sort of some images that may last longer than the words and that may then lead to different mm. sort of associative networks that get set off. And so I'm also doing some qualitative interviews and I'm very sad that my beliefs aren't necessarily coming out in the data in terms <laughs> of what is it six months, 12 months after the program that parents remember and, you know, and they, they kind of talk vaguely about images, um, but it's not. And I, and then I can rationalize that in terms of, oh, yeah, but that's because it's it's not verbal. It's just right hemisphere to right hemisphere <laughs> stuff. So, of course, their left hemisphere words can't you know, express that. Sort sure. of. Sure. <laughs> anyway, so I think there's a bunch of stuff, and it's about how do we kind of boil down the main things and in a way that can be carried forward is what I try and do in that space. <laughs> Yes, really interesting to listen to the the imagery, different ways of learning, different things that stick with people. But what I'm most committed to, really backed up by the qualitative research of parents' experience and what makes a difference to sustained hope, is parent self-discovery, mm-hmm. not being instructed. Mm. And what a family systems approach offers is parent discovering through the stepping back and describing, here's what happened in this difficult interaction, not giving opinions, not going down the track of emotionally venting, but just getting into that brain space. It's very concrete. So it's easy for people who don't have a lot of literacy just to say, I said this, my child responded this way, my other parent said this, and then you'll add in the sequence in the manual and what were you thinking and what was your emotional tone and what happened next. And at the end of it, it's what was the effect of your part? And there's always some good effects and some difficult and problem effects and helping the parent to own it mm-hmm. and have agency develop or self-efficacy or internal locus of control or whatever you um, psychological term you want to use of what's going to facilitate parent agency and that really has shaped the development of the input of the program and the other thing that I think is so important for parents in this, once they start to see, oh, this is where I get caught in trying to change my child rather than adjusting my tone or staying out of it or whatever it might be, when they get that awareness and things inevitably get messy, mm. you know, in a, a six-session program, an eight-session program, it's not a fix because family life is messy and there will be regressions. And if clinicians can be prepared for that and normalize that, but if parents can say, oh, 
I've fallen back into the old way. Mm. I know that pattern. That's where I used to be and stress is high and it's just easiest mm -hmm. to go back there. Mm -hmm. I had a mum say that to me mm -hmm. working through the program this week, just saying, oh, the other way of working has made such a difference to the child I'm most worried about, but I was tired last week and it's just easier to do the old <laughs> intrusive stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's coming from her. Sure. Yeah. That self-awareness mm. is, I think, the key. Yes, yes. Yep. She's aware of, of the potential effects of it, but it's like, it's the best I can do today. Mm -hmm. And it might be. And this sense of really understand, it's not just that I've got information about what to do, you know, there's a skill that I apply. There's some understanding of what's happening here, almost mm. like a formulation or whatever you want to call it, that I get what gets in the way, what are the things that I do that turn out to be helpful most of the time, what things do I do that turn out to be unhelpful most of the time? But understanding why I do them and why my child does it, all that kind of, uh, I get it, uh, it can lead to a really different way of being, even if I do tend to sometimes revert back to, to things, that I can understand what is happening here and what my child is truly trying to communicate to me. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're nearly out of time. So the last question really is, if somebody is listening and they, they hear about your program, they think that sounds really interesting, I want to know more, what should they do? Have a look at our website. Right. The three Ws, parenthopeproject.com.au or the broader website in which that manualized program is embedded is parentproject.com.au. And we should mention Jenny is doing some face-to-face -face workshops on the Parent Hope Project. Uh, and particularly on this subject of how do you engage parents when they have an attitude about fixing your child. I'm sure that'll be a very popular topic and uh, they will be in three locations, rural locations. And if you want more information about that, you can go to the Peregrine website. I'm looking forward to it very much. And Mark? So I haven't got anything quite as well developed in terms of websites and what have you, but it's a very much a sort of a locally grown product. And so if you did a Google search for confident carers, cooperative kids, you'll find out a bit about the program. It's, I mean, it grew out of the Illawarra and Wollongong. Various people are running it in other parts of New South Wales and elsewhere. And yeah, there may be some local places that have picked it up. Uh, we're, we're still at the launch phase, uh, so maybe next exciting. year might be a bit further on yeah, with that, that process. And if you're interested in black box parenting, that's something you can also find out about at the Peregrine Centre website. We do run trainings for that funded by the Department of Communities and Justice. Well, thank you so much to my two wonderful guests today. Uh, thank you for your time and thank you for a really insightful and interesting conversation. We hope you found this episode helpful. As always, we invite you to visit the Peregrine Centre website to give us further information about your practice, the topics that are important to you, and in any questions you might have for our guests. The Peregrine website is theperegrinecentre.com.au. Thank you for listening. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.